Hey, everybody. How's it going? This is Rob Turley, your host of Down the Rabbit Hole podcast. And today I've got somebody who I've gotten to know for quite some time in the Salesforce group. Pretty exciting. His name is Patrick Joyce, and he will be the featured guest tonight. Well, it's nighttime now. It may not be when you're listening, but doesn't matter. Anyway, this guy is a guy who went from salesperson to consultant, that evolution. And we want to start talking a little bit about that together, because what does C-suite or any higher level person want when they're being sold to? They just wish that all salespeople were just consultants who are wearing a disguise or a costume as a salesperson. That's ideal because you're trying to help solve a problem. You're trying to help add value. You're not trying to pitch a product, for God's sakes. It is the worst thing ever. Nobody wants to be pitched a product or, or at any type of feature dumping. So Patrick, if you don't mind, I would love if you could introduce yourself. Give us a little bit idea of who you are, what you like, and what type of experience you have, because uh, you'll do a better damn job than I ever would. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks, Rob. Um, happy to be here. And uh, yeah, yeah, consulting is something I've been doing for the past, um, I guess, about 18 months um, as a full-time consultant. But I started out as a sales rep in the tech industry. Actually, I did insurance for a little bit before that. Um, but when that's I started out, world. <laughs> it, it it definitely is, and that's that's why I jumped into tech because it's really hard to make a lot of money, um, in, you know, inside of a couple of years uh, in insurance. So I, I jumped into tech. I live in Seattle, um, and my first job that I got as as a, an SDR, um, I realized very very quickly that the top of funnel um, was a problem that a lot of people were trying to solve. And I, I was a math teacher before I got into sales. So I, I kind of had a little bit more professional acumen um, than the typical entry level rep. And I realized. What, like, was that a math much, teacher or a professor? A teacher. I was a high school math teacher. Um, I, my undergrad major was in was in math. Um, and then I did a little bit of master's work at at um, at Boston University uh, in number theory. Um but it, I, I never finished the master's because I started making money in tech and, you know, it didn't make any sense to go further into debt. <laughs> so anyway, the the thing that I noticed right away um, as an SDR was that if I could just specialize um, top of funnel, you know, sales development, business development, and really, um, you know, become an expert in that area, then I would never be out of work because it was a problem that everybody was trying to solve. Right, like the account executive position is something that I turned down multiple times. I got offered enterprise AE, you know, high base salary, um, selling, you know, uh, uh, expensive tech to big companies, and I turned it down because I really wanted to build like um, uh, a recession-proof career and a career where I would never really have a hard time finding work. Um, and it, it it did work out exactly the way that I kind of wanted it to, um, in short order, right? Because uh, uh, I, I took the job as an SDR, did really well there. And then I just kept moving up market, um, and getting more and more experience and building my network in business development, uh, the whole time, which pretty much led me to my consulting career, which would have been impossible had I taken any of those, um, you know, account executive positions that I was offered. Right. Right. And becoming a top of the funnel uh, master is very difficult to do. That's definitely where the most pain is. I mean, you could get you can get a good group of closers and all that. But if the top of the funnel isn't getting qualified properly, isn't getting fed, then what do those closers have to close? Absolutely. Yeah. Nothing. Right. Yeah. And there's there's a lot of technique and there's a lot of finesse in, in trying to go from um, like completely cold, like you, it's a cold market, you know, you, you don't have any existing relationships. Um, you've got a named account list that you'd like to get into. Uh, how do you get a, attention? How do you get the attention of the C-suite, right? Like, how do you end up on the radar? 
Um, so there, there's, it's a problem that I worked on for a really long time. And um, in, the, in the past 18 months, I've been able to apply that broadly across like a variety of use cases, a variety of different types of products, different types of companies. Um, and I've really like narrowed in on like exactly what the, um, what the points are that make uh, uh, somebody pay attention to you when they don't know you at all, right? Like, you know, the, uh, the average executive is getting hundreds of emails a day about different products and they're basically like marketing drip campaigns, right? Like how do you, um, stick out, like, how do you be the signal in the noise, um, and, and get somebody's attention that you might actually be able to solve a problem that they have. And it's a very consultative approach, right? Like, um, it's it's not about the product. It's not about the features. It's not about you. It's about showing the other person that you understand what their workflow is like, that you understand what the problems that they might be facing are, and that you've helped others that like them solve them already. Like if you can do that in a short amount of time, all of a sudden you're on the calendar. They, they want to be listened to and they need to be heard. And the reason I say that is because getting listened to and really being heard are two different things. And that's through a lot of line of questioning. I mean, the good old rule of 30% of the rep time speaking and then 70% of the uh, potential client or prospect time speaking is so important. And that's the thing. It's the consultative approach. Um, the idea behind like SDRs are dead. We're not going to need SDRs anymore type of thing that's going around. Sure. It's a very popular subject. I disagree with it, but I think the role of the SDR is going to be changing where it's no longer, hey, do you want, do you need this product? Sure. Great. Are you interested in having a conversation about this service? Are you having these struggles, A, B, and C? Oh, you are? Okay. Let me connect you to somebody to talk to. There's not going to be any of that because no one wants to be passed around. It's really annoying, creates all the noise. It should be, like, for example, I've dedicated my life to targeting and uh, people data and uh, firmographic data analytics in a way where people can find exactly who's within their TAM and then their own addressable market, best resonating fit. Now, when you have that level of accuracy and precision, that changes the game. Where an SDR is no longer needed to do all that grunt work, outreach, spamming bullshit that they've been doing. They need to be able to have an actual prepared conversation. Do the proper pre-call planning. Do the proper research. Make sure that you're building a relationship because it's not just about finding someone in their active buying phase. That's less than 3%. It's about finding people in their passive so that you have that time before they're ready to buy to build that relationship so they don't even go shopping around. They say, hey, Patrick, I'm ready because they already trust you. You've already given them value. It's already good. But what does it take to get there? It takes a consultative value-driven approach. Buyer safety, buyer centric, 110%. So the role of the SDR is going to turn more into almost like a consulting role. It's almost yeah. like somewhat it's 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 a role where you help someone buy something or help them understand what it is that they need in the first place not just try to offer something to them and shove it in their face right yeah yeah a couple of points there um uh, one is the the 70 30 talk ratio you're talking about i just it, it stuck out to me i thought it was really interesting because um as an educator right uh, it the same rule applies if i'm talking more than half the time to a classroom full of people there's a zero percent chance that they are going to retain anything that i'm talking about if i can right. get them talking if i can get them you know, asking me questions and talking to each other about how to solve the problem, I'm gonna have a lot better of a time as uh, as an educator. And the same thing applies in sales. Um, the other point that I thought 
you mentioned that was interesting was the, um, you know, the less than 3% of the market, right? Like I, I think it was the bridge group. I use this stat all the time. Like, you know, you could say uh, on average in any market, 2% of the, of, of the market is in an active buying window. Um, but 40% of the market is experiencing some type of latent pain with the solution that they're currently using. And they might be willing to entertain, um, you know, evaluating something else. And then you've probably got, you know, 58% or, or, or more of the market is, is probably set with what they're doing already. Right. So I'm not going after the 2% because that's probably inbound. Like those are probably inbound leads. They're in the red. They're actively searching for a solution. That's not who I'm looking for. I'm looking for the 40% that is experiencing some type of an issue that's not bad enough for them to go to the doctor yet, right? Like they have a shoulder pain, but it's okay. They can still carry on. Um, so yeah, that, that's- Thank you for saying that. You were one of the yeah. few salespeople I've spoken to understand what the pat what the power of the passive uh, buying cycle is instead of the active. Because the active, that's where all the blood, guts, fins are flying around. And it's shark infested water. You know what I mean? All the competitors are all over them. They don't know what to do. They're getting just bombarded with shit. But if you don't have that existing relationship, the chances of them being an active buying cycle and buying from you are very slim. Or it's because they just don't give a shit and they just need to buy a solution really quickly to get the, the make the headache go away, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're trying to patch um, the leak um, versus, you know, uh, preventative maintenance, right? Like, that that's that's what I'm trying to trigger when I'm reaching out into a cold market is you know introducing the the idea that I might be able to help them do something a little bit better than they can get ahead on right so there's really only about seven things that that the human mind can sort of carry on about um, you know probably three of those things are family and personal relationships and then the other three or four are probably something to do with their job um, and if I can hit on one of those three or four topics that they're currently working on and trying to solve and, and I can make it better for them um, all of a sudden it opens up right it's like the secret door in a video game or something it's like you hear the the Zelda music like you found the, you found the secret hole in the wall right yeah yeah exactly if you're asking them these questions and it's all about the questions but if you can ask them the right questions and have them start talking about their pain and they feel comfortable with you so of course building rapport up front is very important a little bit of that small talk get them comfortable and just tell them you're i'm going to ask you a couple of difficult questions if you're okay with that and then say ask permission first but when you do and you get them to start talking that way let them speak about it even if you have an idea whatever else it may be they're going to pour out their entire heart for lack yeah. of a better term, and talk about everything that's going on. And that leaves you all of the information that you need to assess what the issue even is. And if you can even help them, you don't just sell somebody on something because they'll buy it. That's irrelevant. It doesn't right. help the company. It doesn't help you. And it, it leads to a lot of problems that are very expensive in the future. And it also doesn't really work in enterprise sales. Like when you're selling expensive technology to big companies, like that's not how they operate. Like they're not, it's not a transactional sale. They're not making a snap decision. It's not an emotional decision. It actually goes through, you know, there's um, a committee that it has to, you know, you have to, um, that they have to confer with their peers. Um, so yeah, there's a whole bunch of technique in there, but then you also mentioned like that the role of the SDR, um, you see it evolving and, and I do too, because I really think that it's, it's viewed as this entry level position, right? It's like a stepping stone to get to a oh, it really executive. shouldn't be. It's a mistake as an entry level position. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think where it does apply is if you have a really strong product market fit and you just need somebody to, it's like you're selling Kleenex, right? It's like, Hey, do you need some Kleenex? Yeah, I do. A lot okay. of times they're highly transactional. 
you can do that um, in that scenario, but um, to like take a new product to the market, you really need an expert in um, a, you know developing business um, to actually you know like it, it should be a highly trained, highly regarded position that's that's well compensated. I think even more than the closing position should be, um, because if you have everything lined up right, you know the, the closing motion should be a matter of paperwork. It's it's aligning those. Um, you know, the current needs of the buyer to what your capabilities are as a software company. I think if you can get that part right, like closing is just sort of, you know, a, a matter of uh, it's just a step uh, going through the way. motions. It's, part, it's yeah. part of the buyer's journey. And that's why I don't think closers, personally, I don't even think closers should be a thing. I think a salesperson should be full cycle. You started the conversation, you built a relationship with them. You don't just pass them. And say, okay, great. We got to know each other for six months. Fantastic. Love this guy. And then, oh, by the way, yeah, you're going to talk to, uh, you know, to Fran uh, over in the AE department, uh, you know, to just figure everything else out. So no, no. If oh, anything, you know what? You should be a part of the conversation. You just bring someone in who's in, uh, who's either in finance or operations. Even the yeah. CF person can get involved. I, I do agree with you to a certain extent, but I've also um, been on teams where I was brought in basically as a specialist, as a business development specialist, where I don't have the existing relationships. I don't know as much about the product or about the world of of the buyer as, as much as like, you know, the account directors do. Um, but I was able to go and, and generate conversations for them um, and support them in, in breaking into some new business because they have so much on their plate already. Right. Like that goes back to the original point of predictable revenue. Like that's what Aaron Ross was writing about. So you have a dedicated prospecting team, but at the same time, I wasn't entry level. Like I was really experienced by the time I was in that position. Right. So uh, what I was good at was taking everything that they know that the account directors know, um, that the marketing team knows about, um, the buyer and then pulling those, uh, pulling the like really specific points out about, um, uh, you know, what's going to get the attention of, uh, you know, how am I going to get the C-suite? How am I going to get the VPs into a meeting? Um, that's what I was really good at is like taking the stuff that's already there, looking at it, figuring out what the important points were, putting them in a concise message and then getting, actually getting that out, um, to the right people in a certain account or a list of accounts um, that, you know, the, the, the closing team wasn't going to have the time to do. Right. So that's how I've seen it done really well. But I think if you're naive and you're like, oh, I can just go hire, you know, 10 kids that are just out of college to do that. It's probably a fairy tale. Like that's, it, it's not going to happen. That's right. And then that also, uh, I'm not assuming with what I'm saying either with uh, that, uh, the salesperson's also the account manager. No or like the account director, whatever you want to call it, whatever level they want to call it, is that mm -hmm. that separate person, though, they should come in toward the end of the deal. And I think that the customer success person should get involved. That's also Marcus's uh, uh, idea on that, Marcus Kauke, is to get CS involved, to have them understand how will you be treated and what is the experience going to be like while working with us to give them that idea of this is the customer journey, you're already in it. Yeah, no, definitely. That's a great point. And that's something I think a lot of teams miss is even if you like you do have, um, you know, a, a low experience SDR team in play, like they should be working hand in hand with the customer success team, like speaking to customers that are already on the books and understanding why did they buy? Like, why did the last five deals close? How are these people using us? I think that's like um, a sort of a missing link um, in a lot of these sales organizations. But when I do um, uh, pipeline architecture for people and deal uh, deal pipeline architecture, uh, as well as in my own business's CRM, 
the thing that I require from any of my clients or from my team are two things for the marketing team. And so that people can understand what's going on. Um, there are two fields. One of the fields is close one reason. This is the salesperson's perspective. This is why the person bought from the salesperson's perspective. Now, the reason, instead of the close one reason, it's just the reason. The reason is the exact words of why they're buying. So it's like, you know, after they say, yep, I'm going moving forward with it. And then you, the salesperson should ask them, okay, great. What are you most excited about? Like, what are you looking forward to? Well, I'm looking forward to it because it's going to help us with this, this, that, 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 that. All those words right there, pull it from the transcript or take notes on it and put that in. That is the reason why they bought through the buyer's eyes. So you have yeah. through your eyes and through the buyer's eyes documented completely every single sale. That way that the marketing team or whoever else is involved can know exactly why and speak the market's language, not your own language and why people buy from you. Because as the person who's solving the problem, you see it quite differently than the people who are coming to you to solve that problem. Yeah, no, it, absolutely. And and it's probably the first thing that I ask um, when I get uh, brought in in a consulting capacity um, to open new business is why did the last five deals close, right? Like what got the dotted line, you know, what got them to sign on the dotted line? Like, why did you get the DocuSign back? What were they motivated to solve? Like that's, that's usually my first point of, uh, of interest in terms of trying to figure out how am I going to craft this messaging? It, right? it's, it's incredible how few people actually know. Yeah. They, yeah. They usually go, I've never even thought of doing that before. Well, I'm not exactly sure why they bought. Oh, well, it's because they need help with, value prop that we offer but okay no that's not really it what what is the actual reason yeah yeah exactly what were they trying to solve what what were they currently doing that wasn't working well enough because that's realistically that's the only reason why somebody's going to buy and I, I use a really easy example i'll give credit to josh braun for this one but he says you know why does anybody buy a yeti cooler right like this this thing that uh i keep my water in like why does anybody buy that they didn't buy it right here because of um uh you know the the lining that's on the inside it's a polycarbonate they didn't buy it for any of those reasons they buy it because it keeps their drink cold right like they went on a hike and they started with a cold drink and by the time they got to the top it wasn't cold anymore right so they wanted something better that's the reason why they spent the money on the yeti because it will keep their drink cold or warm or whatever right like that's um so i i i mean uh, uh sometimes i think it's um uh, a you know, you could mistakenly apply a lot of B2C concepts to B2B. I think people make that mistake. But in this case, it really is true, right? It's the same thing with like a BMW. On the BMW commercial, they don't show like the engineering of, you know, how they built the motor. They show a person driving home from work in it. Like what's the experience going to be like after you make the purchase? Um, that's, you know, what motivates people to buy. Yep. No one gives a shit how the engine works, all that. All they care is that they could put gas in the car and it takes them from point A to point B and it has any type of luxury or any type of add-ons or, or features within the vehicle that will supply uh, to the needs that they have. And meanwhile, you don't even talk about those features. You just talk about, yeah, it'll keep your butt warm. Yeah, steering wheel won't be freezing when you when you get into it. Yeah, it's the windows are tinted and so you won't get sunlight in your eyes as much. Yeah, and it's right. fun to drive, right? I mean, people want, like, that's why I want one because they're fun to drive. You go for a test drive in a BMW, it's not quite the same thing as a Honda Accord. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with the Honda. It depends on what your current needs are, right? Like if you need a value car for your family and you need to be able to put a car seat in the back or whatever, like the Honda might be the right choice if you're a bachelor and you want to go for you know a spin down the highway you might want the bmw it just it depends you know it's aligning what the buyer's needs are to what their desired future state 
um, what they want that to be. And, and that's, you know, how you open business. Yeah, no, it's funny that you say that though, because I drive a Honda um, and I bought it. I do too, by the way. But I, I drive a Honda uh, Type R FK8. So uh-huh. it's a track car. It was designed by Mugen. Had to get one, but uh, Hondas can get pretty fun. It, you know, it just. Oh, yeah. On- yeah. I'm in a Honda uh, hybrid right now, the Insight. Uh, 2019 insight and it's cool i mean it was a good little zippy city car but yeah i'm i'm ready for um uh to have a little bit more fun you know yeah yeah be careful though because tickets are also not fun (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah um there was a guy i I forget what his name was there was a guy in the joe rogan podcast talking about how uh you know speeding tickets are just they're just you know part of it's like part of the upkeep on your car (laughs) pretty much you know yeah, it's just something that you, if you can just accept it and then you don't get mad when you get pulled over. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I was going pretty fast. Yeah, there's nothing to be upset about. You did it to yourself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's funny. Good. Well, moving forward from here, I like where we left off on the, um, yeah, it's becoming a consultative role. It's important to actually listen to the buyer, all of that stuff. And that's something that uh, a lot more salespeople should know. And if it's something that's not being taught, so all of our C-suite VPs out there that are listening. It's something that needs to be consistently coached because the average amount of money spent right now on uh, training and coaching a team, sales team right now is about $1,200 a year per individual, which is very sad. The proper coaching needs to be done because the difference between a well-coached salesperson and a salesperson who's had no coaching is literally astronomical. That type of stuff needs to be taught to them. They're not just going to uh, magically develop it on their own, unless you're someone like Patrick or myself or you're a freak of nature. It's just that it doesn't just happen. And if it ever does, don't think that that's replicatable. It's it's an intangible learning uh, process. And it's something that should be absolutely taught to the team and consistently trained every single week. Competence, confidence, executive presence. How do you develop that? It's through consistent training. How do you become consultative? By learning the market, the industries that you work with, your your product itself, your services itself without selling it, and learning through asking questions on how to drive that, that process. If your sales team can currently not, is not able to do that presently, that is a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Now uh, I, I'm an enterprising young man. I, you know, I've been pretty motivated, but I I'll admit myself, I, I actually sought out the coaching on my own, right? Like I, I hired Justin Michael um, as a coach about two years ago. And that's pretty much what sent me down this path without that extra, because I knew that he had been there before, right? He had um, sold the big companies before and I was getting into a role like that. So I sought out the extra help. Like I wanted somebody to coach me. I wanted to know how do these people think? And then what I, you know, the, the C-level, like the, the executives at a big company, what's on their plate? Like, what are they talking about internally? Like what happens in those meetings? That's the stuff that I was searching for. Um, and then the other thing is that once I started to do it, I became more qualified every day that went by, right? Like every day as a consultant qualifies you even more to be a consultant, right? It's this, it's like, it's really hard to go from zero to one, but once you get there, like the more experience you get, it just, it sort of like doubles over on itself over and over again. Um, you know, and then a year goes by now I've talked to a lot of teams of, you know, um, uh, handled conversations with like, you know, a CMO, a CFO, um, you know, an, an exec leadership team at a, a $20 billion company, like all those experiences allow me to speak with a lot more confidence um, you, you know, in, in the engagements that I'm in, but it's really hard to get the experience without having any. 
I don't know if that even makes any sense, but I think you probably get what I'm saying, right? Yeah, I mean, it's catch-22. Is that uh, How are you supposed to sell effectively if you have no experience? And if you have no experience, how can you sell effectively? Well, you need to mm -hmm. sell, and you need to learn to sell effectively to get that experience. So it's a constant loop. That's why like role play, things like that are so important, so that it's in a safe space. Yeah, uh, and I think I think that's a good strategy for for the execs that are out there is like take your top reps and bring them into meetings. Like let them see how you communicate with each other. Um, and you know, that could be a, like a really good starting point that's low cost, right? It doesn't, we already doesn't do cost that. a lot. Like in my at my company, that is something that we do because it is necessary. They need to understand what conversations are being had, how it all functions, how it works. Because if you don't understand truly how a company operates from top to bottom. How are you supposed to understand how you enable something? If you were to offer a solution or help someone solve a problem, how is that going to affect the rest of their business? If you don't understand exactly. the rest of the business and the functions, you cannot speak to that. And if you cannot speak to that, you will not be deemed as an expert or they may disqualify you as a seller because you don't understand what it is that it's going to do for them. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I mean, it's one of those things. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like once you start doing it, all of a sudden the CRO is going to be knocking on your, you know, uh, knocking on your door or, you know, you're going to get a text message from your VP of sales. Like, Hey, how did you, how did you do that? Like, that's what happened to me. Like once I started getting the coaching and actually delivering the results, all of a sudden I was on the radar of the executive team. They wanted to know more about me. Right. So then it just continued even further. So yeah. Yeah. I, I think that communication like, um, you know, across the team is like, is just paramount. That's another important thing that you just mentioned there. So you went off on your own after getting this training and you sought out the training on your own. If any, if anybody who's listening, who works for a business, if you're a salesperson or anybody else and your company's not willing to pay for training, seek it out yourself because you can become way bigger, better and badder that way than you were before to help just slingshot your career. But then all the employers that are out there listening to this, make sure that you offer training assets and damn good ones to your team and coaching because if you don't and they seek them out for themselves they're often going to think i've got nowhere left to grow they're not even taking care of me i had to do this myself so i'm going to leave this company i'm going to go somewhere else or do my own thing and you know really excel in my career because i'm not going to excel here so you're going to lose really good employees by not giving them the proper training and coaching and be left with all the riffraff or the people who are just not in, in, enabled to move or do something different with their life so it's so important to offer that to them that way they know that it came from you and it wasn't on their own volition in order to keep high longevity employees, keep them from churning over. But then again, because um, attrition rates are a serious problem, especially in sales. But then again, Patrick, what drove you to go your own direction down the entrepreneurship route? Because that's that's a huge skip going from salesperson, which usually salespeople are a bit money hungry. They're trying to make the the biggest bet, the most bang for their buck. They're trying to sell as much as possible, really a hustler thing to do. And then selling someone else's services, living on commission. When you move to an entrepreneurship role, commission doesn't exist. Like even mm -hmm. as a CEO of a company, I, I don't get commission. I don't even take commission on sales. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the big motivator for me was really just that um, I wanted to be able to write my own ticket. You know, I, I wanted to be known for something and I wanted to be able to take what I had learned and um, give it to as many other people as possible. So I got, I was lucky enough to get some really great, uh, mentorship and training and coaching from like a select few individuals. And I really wanted to be able to give that back. Um, and you know, um, 
selling for somebody else, like I, I'm not necessarily in a position to do that quite as much, or even as like a sales manager or something like you're, you're kind of stuck in the weeds. Um, but as you know, an entrepreneur, as a consultant, uh, I am able to train and coach people, right? Like I, so I've, I took that training that I received myself and I've trained a bunch of other reps one-on-one -on -one that are, um, you know, uh, looking to improve their results and exactly how you said it, like, nobody's been upset that they spent the money on the training because it helped them make more money in their career, right? Like the stuff that they learned, they took directly from me and then they went and they, they made, you know, a shed load of commission with it. Um, that's, so that's a cool benefit right there. Not only is it benefiting the individual in their career and it's making them more money, it is benefiting whatever business and it doesn't matter which one, whatever business they are working for, they're benefiting from it as a business because the salesperson is performing at a much higher level. Exactly. Yeah. I would even recommend like take some of the money that you were going to spend on an LMS system, like to do product training and just make it, you know, put it towards a learning and development budget for the reps um, and let them go out and get that coaching or look for some coaching, you know, for the, across the team, uh, because or I think it goes a lot that, further. Some from that massive marketing budget that you have just to dump into ads to get what? Uh, a point, uh, 0.65% to 1.5% click-through rate, pull some of that. A couple thousand dollars, you could train all the reps and uh, just keep that consistent. If anything, just hire on like a, a training asset, someone who's there to help them through any sale, do the pre-call planning with them, build out like structured processes with each of them so that you have an in-house trainer, which I wish a lot more people would do that, in-house trainers so that they're always there to help, to look over what's going on. So beyond like the sales ops, or beyond like the VP of sales role and or beyond the uh, the sales manager role where they're helping them and everything. They can only help so many people at once. If you had an asset or a person, I hate calling people assets, but that's just the term, um, that is able to spend as much time as they need with each individual personally, that could be a huge leap. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Definitely. And, you know, um, I, I think marketing and sales, like there's a huge divide there. I think we're, I mean, before our lifetimes are over, I think that we'll see those two things um, sort of blend a whole lot more, right? Like I think- I've always been. Marketing yeah. and sales are two of a kind and they exist together. And the fact that they're siloed anywhere is a problem. Those silos are what make it so Marketing is getting all this engagement and nobody's clo nothing's closing from it. It's what makes it why the sales team's pissed off the marketing team and say, oh, they only pass a shit lead. Well, no, it's because there's not enough communication. And then the salespeople are not tracking the reason why people are buying those experiences and providing or they're, they're not even looking. It's a data problem mostly because yeah. you need to look at the sales data to understand how to market. And then the marketing needs to drive that in order to drive more sales. And then it's a, it's a constant loop. That's what I've devoted my life to solving. Like one of the pieces of the puzzle right there is yeah. why my company exists. And uh, I like that you mentioned that because those silos are not going to do anyone favors. And the, the longer people keep up those silos, I can guarantee you that those companies will not be around for much longer once those things start toppling. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the other um, uh, point of, you know, why, why did I get into a more of a, a consulting entrepreneur type of role is because I wanted to be able to apply my skill set broadly instead of in one specific area. Right. So if I'm selling for one company, there's a limited amount of experience that I can get from that. Um, but if I'm truly going to be an expert in opening new business and business development, 
I have to be able to do it in any context, right? So the the ability to switch contexts quickly and work for you know five different companies at the same time and take and and really generalize like what is the actual equation that I'm looking at here, right? Like it's not just the specialized version. I want the generalized version. Like what am I doing that's actually working and how do I apply that across like a wide variety of, of different um, markets and different products, uh, different types of buyers, different types of sellers. Um, you know, that that's something that I really wanted to, you know, make sure that I really knew what I was talking about. And I kind of wasn't just getting lucky in one particular area. I love that you say that too, because you know, I have a background in solutions architecture. And what I did is that I invented a thing called sales solutions architecture. Pretty interesting. So from all the functionality, different pieces of the business uh, forming together, either uh, uh, mixing in the deal pipeline, the pipeline architecture, everything put together, data aggregation and so on, all the way to marketing and looking how it all connects and how it all functions. And if you look at it from a solutions architecture point of view, which is breaking it down to every if then statement within a business and how everything's tied together, doesn't matter what the business is, what they sell, if they're B2B, B2C, if they're a medical company, uh, like, you know, a medical devices company, if they're a software company, if they're a financial company, they all function the same way with the same divisions within a business. It's all for the same purpose. Generally, you need a company needs to make money so that it can pay its employees. And how? By offering a valuable product or service to other individuals to help them do the exact same thing. That's literally it. And all the pieces that move, how finance interacts and how everything interacts with each other, it's all really one system that functions the same way. Sure, there are some small variations or differentiators, but they're essentially the same thing. And what you're saying here is that when you're looking at it and generalizing it, all of those moving parts are almost identical across any company. It's just exactly. how it's executed, what the purpose, mission, vision, the goal is, where you're trying to go and what it is that you're offering, the language that you're using based off of whatever you're trying to solve. That's the difference. And I think it's just, it's really interesting you and I having this conversation because we came at it from two completely different angles and we're really arriving at like a lot of the same conclusions. And I think um, I'm sort of reverse engineering exactly what you're talking about from the chair of like a, a, a BDR, a business development rep, or, you know, from the sales rep trying to get the new business where I'm looking at the executive leadership team in the in the account that I'm trying to get into. And I'm sort of testing the fence across a variety of different titles. Like I have five to eight people that I'm reaching out to at any given time. Um, and I might have like, you know, your ICP is like, let's say, I don't know, VP of risk management or something. That's the person that you want in your meeting. But what happens if they don't, you don't have their phone number and they don't answer your email right away? Well, what are you going to do then? Uh, I'm looking at the, the circle of people that's around them and I'm trying to push my messaging to try to get the attention of somebody else that might mention them to me. And then all of a sudden, once they're talking to each other about me, then, then I can get in. The right? so, multi-threading, exactly. And, and, I'm, and I'm doing that from the, the top of the funnel, right? Like the tip of the spear is multi-threading the account and I'm getting more than one person in on that meeting and you know building awareness um, from that top of funnel position, which is again, like it's, it's more of an advanced concept. It's something that took me years to arrive at. But I'm I'm really like reverse engineering that that uh, sales system architecture, um, you know that that you're talking about from no, no, the other that's direction. Fun because with the tech that that I build, uh, that my team builds, is that it's finding the decision makers, influencers, whoever else is in, within a business. Whether it's the end decision maker, that's often not the target because they're going to ignore you or shoot you down, or you won't resonate with them. Who are you going to talk to? That's the best entryway. Who's most likely to become your champion? So I analyze data that I analyze 
understand their ICP, build a predictive model, and then all the people within uh, the uh, decision-making party, if you're looking at it from an account-based perspective, instead of spamming all of them, which gets dangerous because of brand damage, they'll talk shit about you internally, whatever may Yeah, happen. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, who should you talk to? First Frank, then Sally, then Kevin, and then you'll get the introduction to Amanda, who's at the top working through them and what order should you reach out how should it be done strategically so you can get the content to the people who resonate with your value prop and you as an individual human being um uh the most that way you can be as effective as possible so it's adding science behind the multi-threading it's a very complex process for the way that you're doing it without the 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 uh the tech driving that like an ai driving that that would be yeah. very difficult and it's the way i knew it before building something like this but that's interesting that you say that because you're doing that same process that the tech that I'm building is doing as a process yeah. ordinarily do it so that it could be done in seconds and right. you can understand where. So I'd love to tell me a little bit more about what it is that you're doing when you're doing this process. What are you looking for specifically? Yeah, there's, there's two things that I'm doing. One is I'm sort of like, you know, uh, uh, at the the near the target that we're going after all the stuff at the top but then while that's happening i'm also going in from the the low level i'm talking i'm calling into the sales line like i'm just going on linkedin and finding the sales reps at that company and trying to talk to them about what's currently happening like what software they're currently using right like i'm i'm trying to build a case um at, at the low level I'm, I'm getting in with anybody that's willing to talk to me at, at the analyst level at the sales rep level right like really low down in the company and just trying to build up towards the all the other activities that, that I'm doing from the top down. So I'm going bottom up and I'm going top down at the same time. Um, yep. from the, the top down perspective, let's say I want the CIO, right? The CIO is going to be pretty hard to get a hold of. But if I have a bunch of conversations down at the at the you know at the entry level and then I've built up and I've, I've maybe I got a meeting with a manager or something like that and I have some insights. It's like hey I talked to Sally um, she mentioned a bottleneck with this workflow. I might be able to help solve that. That's all of a sudden a way more powerful message than like, you know, just the standard value prop, like marketing style message. You're also talking to them about someone that they're familiar with that they know and trust. So yeah, exactly. Like loaning their credibility. And it's great too, because often when you go to the low level, they can tell you a lot of information. They think they can't be a help, which is terrible. They think that, yeah. but they think they can't be a help, but you can learn a lot of what you need in order to build your case for when you speak to the people up top by speaking to the people at the bottom, because the ones in the front lines are the ones that are experiencing the problems themselves. It just gets pushed up to the top on like an executive summary or a piece of paper or a report sheet, and they're trying and to fix it. If I can get some, if I can garner some insight um, at at that, you know, um, at, at the point of entry, and then bring that to the C level executive, they might not even know like the insight that I that I was able to gather, right? They might not even know if I can bring. Yeah, them you know more about they, them than they do about their business that they didn't already know. All of a sudden, like there's that consultative relationship that I'm I'm building towards. Um, the other thing that I'm doing is. I have like five to eight targets, like I said before, and I'm sort of like testing the fence, right? Like I'm I'm putting each of them in, I've done it manually, but you can use software, you, know, you, can, you can use the email sequencing software to do this, but I'm looking at the opens, right? Like if the person's not opening my email, there's no reason for me to keep them in a 25 day drip sequence. Like I'm gonna give it like eight or 10 days and just turn around and look at it. Like, is this person reading my message or not? And if they're not, I'm just gonna swap them out for somebody else. If they are reading my message, 
right? And they're, and they're not responding to me. I'm going to go to all the first degree connections that they have on LinkedIn and then ask them how to get a hold of the person that's reading my message, right? So I'm going to like, you know, um, sort of copy some of the language that I used, put it over there to the first degree connections and then send a whole line of those types of messages. And all I'm trying to do is like spiderweb myself through the organization so that somebody starts talking to each other about me. Right. As soon as they start talking to each other about me, that's how I'm getting in. And th I mean, this is like really advanced stuff. It's like really hard to do it, from it, it's showing them that they're not alone either. So the person with the idea doesn't feel like they're at risk or their career is at risk because other people are talking about it, too. So now it's a group mentality versus an individual's mentality, which is a lot more powerful. Yeah. And that's, that's how I crack an account, right? Like if you gave me a list of 10 accounts, like I'm probably going to be able to get into probably six or seven of them, at least get the meeting, right? I might not be able to close every sale immediately, but especially at this enterprise level, right? It's like, um, but if I can start a conversation that 18 months later turns into a close in turns into close one revenue, like I've done my job as, as the tip of the spear, right? Like that's sort of, um, uh, like a locksmith, I, I think of it as almost like a, like a safe cracking kind of, uh, kind of emotion, right? Like I'm just right. trying to press the right buttons and just, just get on the person's radar, right? Like I even use that language a lot. Like if this is on your radar Q4, like, should we set up some time to call or set up some time for a call? Um, because ultimately like that is the hardest thing to do is, is to go from, we didn't know you, we weren't going to buy anything to now we're considering it. Um, and it might come through in the next budget cycle. Like, you know, that's, it's almost like magic. That's right. That's right. I like that. And when you're building out these messages, I know that you, uh, you know, you were taught by Justin Michael, who's very much into uh, the shape of natural order within emails, uh, the shape of an email, because I'm a firm believer in this too, uh, that an email is a form of, even if it's only text, it is a form of visual communication. It depends on how it looks, the actual shape of the blocks of text that are sitting there, what it looks like, how many words, what you're, con what you're using, because they will actually interact with that text differently based on how it is uh, put together. I mean, from an actual um, architectural standpoint, it's almost like typographic art, uh, uh, you know, being a, a type of, a, what do, how do we even put this? It's like a typographic um, architecture in a way. I don't even yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think of it in terms of actually like in terms of fashion, right? Like certain uh, the fashion has certain waves where, um, uh, you know, uh, all of a sudden everybody's wearing bell bottoms or skinny jeans or whatever, you know, whatever the current trend is. And right now the current trend is that, you know, there's been, there was a couple articles about how executives have like this F curve to, to how they read emails. So all of a sudden everybody's writing these F curve type style emails where it's like kind of line by line and it lets you scan really quickly and they're easy to read. The problem is the instant recognition that you get when you open one of those emails and you've got 200 of them a day, it's like, oh, this is a sales email. This is a marketing email. It's the first thing you can swipe. It actually feels good to get rid of it out of your inbox because it's freeing up your brain power to do something else. that's going to be more productive. So I'm trying to break that cycle immediately. Like I'm trying to short circuit the fact um, that, that they might be trying to swipe me. So I put all of the text into a block, right? It just, I use no line breaks at all. And I keep it to three sentences. Uh, and I use, um, a lot of business speak in shorthand in, in the language that I use. Because then it just, it, 
it, it looks like in internal communication, right? I might, what I'm trying to do is trick the person into actually reading the message, right? Now, um, Justin showed me how to do this. He's AB tested it a ton. I've AB tested it a ton myself. Um, when you use the F curve style um, uh, typesetting, it doesn't work as well as when you don't use any line breaks and plain text the whole thing, right? Like just, just type it out like all in the same line. Actually, the highest performing thing that I've seen is one-line emails. Like, uh, uh, and, and I might even inject some personalization in there, right? Like if I have Visa as a client and I say, hey, um, you know, the, the prospect that I'm going after used to work there. I might say, hey, I noticed your time at Visa. Um, we helped them do X, Y, Z. Was hoping to go over some similar ideas with you. Meeting set, right? I didn't have to say much of anything at all. Like that's a one-line email that sets. Um, and, and I can use uh, conversational language to do it. There's no flowery, like, you know, uh, product marketing kind of um, uh, verbiage in there, right? It's, it's that's, just that's it's marketing, straight. That's not sales. Exactly. It's, it's direct. It's to the point. It's, you know, can I get on your calendar? Um, I, might able, I might be able to help you solve something. And the, the, uh, the defense lowers when I'm, I've helped somebody or I'm currently helping somebody where you used to work. Right. Like that increases the trust level. So there's all these like little techniques is very, very like nuanced skill set that, um, I, you know, I, I, over time, I figured out like what works and what doesn't. And that's one of the things that works. Right. So to talk about the flip side of that, when you get inbound uh, emails from salespeople or for whoever else may be contacting for uh, contacting you and flipping those, that's where I've become quite proficient. Is that from a sales email that gets sent into my inbox to flipping it where I get a meeting with someone in their team that I want to talk to? I have somewhere around a, a 65 to 75% success rate on yeah. that. How did I do that? Well, it's actually quite different. It's not the one sentence or anything like that. It's actually a very descriptive thing. First line, one. Uh, so first, first sentence, one line. Second sentence, two lines. Third sentence, uh, three to four lines. Last sentence, CTA. And then the sign off that seems to work great because it's a little bit of information because they're interested in seeing if you want to buy from them. So it's saying, okay, Hey, nice to meet you. Thank you for reaching out. You know, niceties. They're like, Oh, looking good so far. Second thing. I don't need that, but I have a better idea. Boom. Why is it a good idea? So they could take it to their boss and actually be educated about it. And then the last one is meet, let's meet, let's find a time for uh, to get on the calendar. So uh, like me and the other teammate uh, team members on your side, um, who you think would be good to bring into this, uh, this meeting uh, can get together. Boom, good to go. But it all depends on how it's structured, because it needs to fit whatever mindset it is. Because think about it, when someone's reading something, they're having a conversation in their own head. If you can speak to that conversation in their head, mm -hmm. you've won. It's yeah. not about telling them or asking them, it's about having a conversation with them without you being present. Yeah, yeah. And it, that's, it speaks straight to my point earlier about um, sales and marketing sort of uh, being kind of the same thing, right? Because uh, this is a copywriting technique. Like if you can join the conversation that's happening in the person's head, um, that, you know, that's the ultimate goal of copywriting. Um, uh, what's his name? David Ogilvy, right? David Ogilvy on advertising is a book that I read that was extremely influential to me as a sales rep, right? It's a marketing copywriting book, but it's not, it's not typically geared towards salespeople, but that's exactly what I was pulling from to find a lot of success um, in these sales conversations. And I used um, uh, a, a typical uh, theory that's in communications and, um, and uh, what, uh, e-journalism writing, which is called block writing. 
So doing web block writing for like when you do uh, like e-journalism e or blogs, news releases, press releases, things like that that are on the internet, using that same type of style, the way that it's easy, chunked out to read uh, different types of language and all that stuff. So learned that in college and I never even went into, well, I worked in communications and advertising, but I was on the advertising end, totally different thing. But it, it was taking those elements like you're talking about from something totally unrelated that can work really well for it because it's familiar and it works. Why does it work? If you can deconstruct that and understand how you could apply it to other things. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the deconstructing thing is like, you know, it's been a, um, a reoccurring theme um, in, in my career, right? Like if um, uh, just trying to generalize, you know, like we were saying earlier, trying to generalize, like, what am I doing that works and then uh, apply that across contexts. Uh, it's the same thing that I'm doing with the, the copywriting technique, right? Like, why is this working um, in an advertisement? And and the email is basically an ad unit. I mean, it's not all that different from an, from a, a pay per click advertisement. It's like something that shows up in the person's feed. It's in the e email inbox, so it's a slightly different place, but it's still showing up in the, the feed of their of their daily life. And I'm trying to get them to pay attention to it, to double click on it, to reply to the message. So it's the exact same thing that I'm doing, right? Like I'm I'm sort of trying to deconstruct, um, you know, what causes somebody to click on an ad. Um, and then apply that to my outbound sales email. Another great reason why marketing and sales should conjoin and communicate more because marketing can teach salespeople a lot about why people interact with things. What is it that they like to see? Why do they interact? Color choices, uh, what it is that they read, what engages them, what grips them, all that type of stuff. What leaves a mark you know, behind, making it remarkable, that whole theory behind that. That's something that marketing and advertising if they group together with sales, they could they could teach them, and then sell, salespeople can tell them, "This is what resonates. This is how you get them. This is how you get them to take action. This is how you get them to understand. This is how you meet them at their level." Those two mm -hmm. things need to combine. I mean, as soon as possible. And the companies that are doing it that I've seen so far have been incredibly successful doing so. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's, you know, there's like some specialization, um, uh, I guess, training that you would need to to really like apply that the right way. Right. You, like you can't have um, salespeople actually turning into marketers. You know, no. there's like a, a bunch of things in terms of um, uh, how to present that to an executive to try to actually get them uh, uh, to believe that you're in a consultative role that you might be able to help them. Well, there's a certain way that you present that information, right? Like there's the principle of disinterest. If, if I'm trying way too hard to get on their good side and of like, you know, of scope their Instagram profile and I know what team sports teams they like and stuff. It just, it's just, it's almost like, uh, uh, I call it slathering admiration and it's actually like more of a turnoff than anything else. Right. Like if you can, um, uh, sort of casually just suggest that you might have the solution to some type of a problem that they have and you get that problem right um, and you introduce them to something that they didn't think of before and you show them that you've helped other people like them do it in a short amount of time and like a short amount of text, um, that's actually what turns the meeting on. Right. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Is there anything else you wanted to touch before we conclude here? No, man, I think I think we hit some really good points there. You know, we could probably talk for hours. I'm sure there's there's plenty we could go on and on about. But yeah, I, I think we hit some really good stuff. Awesome. Perfect. Yep. Just want to make sure. So that'll be the end, folks. But uh, Patrick, what is the best place? Also, thank you. But what is the best place for people to get a hold of you if they want to talk to you? And uh, where can they find you? 
Uh, LinkedIn is really good. Also, um, I have a Patreon group where I, I deep dive on this stuff, patreon.com slash email mastermind. Um, yeah, if you want to get a hold of me on LinkedIn, I'm there. My cell phone number's there. My email's there. Uh, that's probably the best place. Perfect. That sounds great. So thank you everybody for listening. Again, this is Down the Rabbit Hole Podcast. I am your host, Rob Turley, and uh, this was brought to you by White Rabbit Intel. And it is a badass AI that helps you target and helps you identify opportunities before you even speak to them. Think about it as a pre-qualification engine and a targeting engine. A lot of fun, really cool future of where everything's headed. So check it out. Anyway, uh, thank you so much, everybody. If you, uh, It is appreciated to follow, to like, and to do anything else. Reshare, do whatever you'd like on social media. And if you call it out, please use the hashtag, hashtag DTRH podcast. And uh, if you tag me, I will always help boost your post. So yeah, showing a little bit of love that way. Thank you, everybody. And you have a great night. If you enjoyed this episode, follow Down the Rabbit Hole Podcast for new episodes weekly on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Pandora, and YouTube. If you'd like to apply to be featured on the podcast or recommend a featured guest, please feel free to email us at the team at whiterabbitintel.com.